0: fellow ag nerds, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you believe ag innovation is a solution to some of our most important problems, you've found the right show here. Well, back by popular demand is Jeanette Barnard. She co-hosted and did the interview for episode 225 about direct-to-consumer meat. That's a great episode to listen to, but just in case you haven't got there, Jeanette is the author of Prime Future, which is a weekly newsletter about trends in the animal protein value chain. And she's the managing principal of Rock Road Consulting, which helps companies launch source and fund innovation. She's also just a great friend and my go-to source on all things animal agriculture. Jeanette, thanks for coming back.
1: Thanks, Tim. Always good to be back with the future of ag community.
0: So last time you guest hosted, we talked about scaling a direct to consumer meat business. And you had a great interview with David Newman of Newman Farms in Missouri. Today seems like a little bit of the other end of the spectrum. You're speaking with Lamar Steiger, a consultant who helped Walmart rethink their beef supply chain. And they're doing some really innovative stuff in trying to improve the quality of their offerings and create shared value. So it does seem like a little bit of going to the opposite end of the supply chain starting at the other side, the side of a retailer. Would you say that's an accurate way to describe this episode?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly the right framing. And I think you can also compare the two, the Newman Farms story and the Walmart story of it's all about getting to uh, an end point of what the consumer wants and then building the supply chain around that. And I just would contrast that approach with working through the existing system. And maybe for listeners that aren't quite as familiar with the beef supply chain, let me kind of describe it. So In the traditional beef supply chain today, what you have is you have cow-calf producers that sell a weaned calf to backgrounders that are going to put those calves on pasture. Um, Maybe it's wheat pasture in Oklahoma or Kansas. Uh, They're going to grow them to, you know, let's say six or 700 pounds. Then those calves are going to go to a feed yard where they're going to be fed a, a grain diet and finished prior to selling to the processor. So What you have is a lot of steps in the value chain, and one of the things you're going to hear in today's episode is this idea that it's shocking, (laughs) absolutely shocking, how little folks at each step of the value chain know about those that are either upstream from them or downstream from them. So you see a lot of cow-calf producers that don't necessarily know the ins and outs of the feed yard business or the ins and outs of the processing business. Maybe that's not a bad thing in and of itself, um, but it's, it really is a function of the current supply chain and that in order to sell a cow-calf producer to sell calves to a backgrounder, they don't really need to know what happens at a feed yard because it doesn't directly affect them. So when Walmart decided they wanted to go down this path of setting up their own supply chain with partners, the first company that they approached was 44 Farms. And 44 Farms is well known for uh, their Angus genetics. So as part of the partnership between 44 Farms and Walmart, the company was established called Prime Pursuits. And so that's the actual entity that's the supply chain moving product through from cow calf producers that are using 44 Farms genetics. And then those cow calf producers are selling calves then to certain backgrounders being sold to a certain feed yard, being sold to a primary processing plant that's part of the partnership, as well as a further processing plant that's part of the partnership. To me, where the Walmart story is most interesting is in this idea of Walmart executives realized a few years ago, um, a lot of consumers go to Walmart for a lot of grocery items but they walk right past the meat case and then maybe they go to Safeway or they go to Costco or they go to Whole Foods for their meat purchases. And Walmart executives basically said, okay, we got to do something about that. We got to make the meat case at Walmart somewhere that has a brand known for its quality. Also with the competitive pricing that Walmart is known for as well. And so that end in mind is really what started this whole process of Walmart saying, All right, how are we going to redesign our supply chain in order to meet that objective? So it's about a a complete systematic flip compared with a traditional supply chain.
0: And another thing that I that really struck me about this interview everybody's about to hear is it's about shared value. You know, they they didn't just go back and find higher quality meat and just go buy higher quality meat. They thought about how can we do this and sort of uh, have partners create share value along along the supply chain. And I think it's really tough to find good stories like that because the push seems to be, you know, either vertically integrate or become more fragmented.
1: Absolutely. I would very much agree with that. I think This is also a bit of a story of um, the tip of the spear, right? the beginning of a trend that we're going to see as beef producers look for ways to increase value um, and to increase the margin that they're getting on their product rather than selling through the traditional commodity system. So I'm hopeful that this is just one story uh, among many that we're going to have in the next few years.
0: Very interesting. Okay, well, I I think that's a good teaser. I'll also say that uh, we have a startup spotlight at the end of the episode with a company called Series Tag. So make sure you stay tuned for that. But first, here is the featured conversation between Jeanette and Lamar Steiger. We'll invite you into the conversation here where Lamar is describing to Jeanette what led Walmart down this road of what he calls digital cooperation with their beef supply chain.
2: You know, if you go back to when Walmart first went in the grocery business, you know, they went from zero grocery stores to several thousand, now over 4,000, in just a matter of a few years. And they went from not being in the grocery store to being the largest grocer in just a little bit more than a decade, I think. And so during that time, and actually even during the late 1900s, 1980s and 90s, people were not as focused on being foodies and food quality and and where food comes from nearly as much as they are now. Mm-hmm. Walmart recognized that, but yet at the same time, to grow a business that fast and that big, you just take whatever meat you can get, really. And so in the mid part of the last decade, Greg Forin came in as the CEO of the US business and he started really pushing for why can't Walmart have a, a better beef supply? And the senior leadership would say we have at that time, we had a well deserved bad reputation. As being a place that you didn't go for red meat and so it's obvious that you don't change that overnight and it's obvious that it's a very difficult supply chain and so in order to change that the first thing you have to do is just get started so 2014 and 2015 is when they really decided to start sending some market signals and i was blessed to be in on some of these conversations and the market signals are that uh, in order to have consistency and quality at that many grocery stores We need some sort of bottom line, some sort of specs that we won't accept meat any less than this. And that's when they sent the signal to the industry, Jeanette, that they want Angus. And uh, part of the thing with Angus is when you have that big a scale, you need a breed that has a lot of numbers. And they know and I know that there are numerous breeds out there and numerous breeds and bloodlines and numerous types of cattle that grow in different parts of the country well that produce great meat. And it's not that Angus probably has any better than the meat that you grow as a beef producer. It's the size and the reputation that the Angus breed has. So that was the first market signal that that Walmart really sent. And then the next one was, hey, we have this many grocery stores. Wouldn't it be interesting to have our own supply chain for a fair number of those stores? And so that started the conversations and the visiting of numerous ranches when I came alongside as a consultant and uh, had my relationship with ranches from one coast to the other and from north to south. And we were able to take the senior leadership of Walmart and uh, sit down at kitchen tables and ranches in Montana and Oregon and Kansas and in the southeast and say, hey, the CEO of Walmart, he's actually a, a New Zealander, and he's actually gone back to New Zealand now. But he wants to know why the American beef supply chain is so dysfunctional. And what do you think as a rancher that Walmart can do to improve it? So we took all that information and all those ranchers with their expertise, along with what Walmart has and the expertise of the meat business. And we developed a a supply chain for the Southeast United States that's up and going as of late last fall, early this winter. And of course, as you can imagine, had some issues during COVID, but is back on track.
1: Wow. So this is rich. There's a lot of angles I want to go with this, Lamar. You've just covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Let's start (laughs) here. Of all of the product categories and all of the thousands of, of SKUs that Walmart sells, why did beef matter to Walmart? Why was the CEO of Walmart saying, we've got to work on our beef supply chain?
2: Yeah, well, for exactly the reason that you said, is that people are not going in a Walmart store to buy meat. And Walmart has two programs for meat. They have a white tray which is select, or I mean lower choice, and the white tray is the, the value proposition. And in many, many categories, Walmart will have an entry-level price, a mid-level price, and a premium price for different brands of the same product. And so they have basically two for, for meat. Uh, meat or beef is on the wall. And if you think about when you go in a super center, the items that are on the wall are usually the items that drive traffic and so beef is on the wall the outside wall of a walmart store and when somebody puts red meat in their their shopping basket they are a lot more likely to put numerous items than if they don't put red meat and so it's a big part of the business that they were not flourishing in and in order to compete and flourish obviously walmart has to flourish and, and has to improve and constantly be improving with their beef supply chain. And as I mentioned a minute ago, this doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, that even if you have the supply is really, really good and uh, the consistency, the quality is really, really good. Customers are not used to going into a Walmart store for their red meat. And I love it when I have friends from around the United States that send me a picture of their black tray upper two thirds choice product and say, wow, we haven't tried Walmart meat in a long time, and it's actually really, really good. And and it is. The Black Cherry Program is, in my estimation, as good a um, beef supply as most anybody in the United States has.
1: Excellent. So that's good context. It sets up kind of the why for Walmart of why they needed to move down a new path. It's really interesting to hear you talk about taking the senior leadership of Walmart to sit down at the kitchen tables with ranchers and, and understand their perspective on why the beef supply chain is dysfunctional. What did they hear? What were the big themes that came out consistently in those conversations with ranchers and the Walmart executives?
2: Yeah, I think it's no secret that uh, lots and lots of us in the beef production business are pretty frustrated by the fact that there are four companies that kill uh, over 80% of the fed cattle. And the perception, whether true or not, at different times of a decade, is that there is a, a funnel that has really gotten tight and strangled at the smallest point. And that is going from hundreds and hundreds of thousands of ranchers to let's say a hundred thousand or some, some number, whatever, uh, whichever number you choose to believe when you research it online, of uh, backgrounders and stalkers. And then to a few thousand feedlots, some of which are huge. And, and one of the great joys has been driving around the country and visiting feedlots that are farmer feedlots still. And uh, those guys know their cattle. And that's that's been so much fun for me to go out and engage with them. And then where does that product go? It goes through the tightest part of the funnel. And so in addition to the Black Tray program that I described earlier is the farm-to-table supply chain that Walmart is developing for the Southeast United States. And that supply chain, one of our core principles that we stuck to the whole time was we were going to find a packing Plant that would work with us that was not one of the four major corporations. Part of that was just to get some insights into how it works and, and what's going on, and how Walmart uh, Meat Team could do a better job of working with their existing suppliers as well as as new suppliers.
1: So, let me ask one more question about the starting point on this new supply chain around Black Angus cattle. So, I'm making the assumption that. The leadership team, they go out, they talk to ranchers, they know the problem from the consumer side. I'm guessing there was a meeting and there was a whiteboard and there was a list of pros and there was a list of cons of moving down this path of Walmart owning a a Black Angus supply chain. If that's a right assumption and there was this type of a conversation, whether it happened in front of a whiteboard or not, what were the big themes in each column? Like, What were the big pros of moving down this path of an owned supply chain versus what were the cons of, of going down that path?
2: Well, on the cons, it's, it's risky. I mean, uh, the beef business is huge. The numbers involved with the resources of cattle, land, and all is huge. And so it's so big that integration, uh, like complete vertical integration, is really a, a challenge. And right away on the whiteboard, it becomes obvious when you start putting up the numbers that Walmart is not going to vertically integrate the beef supply chain. And I know that's been a worry For ranchers and for others that have kind of watched over the decades what has gone on with poultry and with pork but the numbers are huge and so it's a digital cooperation of a supply chain it's not a vertical integration the big challenge there was okay where do you find partners that are willing to go out there on a limb you know with walmart and you know when you go to some of the ranchers and they're like whoa you know we live out here miles from anywhere, and we'll go twice that many miles to avoid the walmart and At different times in Walmart's history, they've earned that, but man, in the last five or six years, the stores have gotten really, really tidy, and the mm-hmm. stores are being run really really well and Walmart is looking at every supply chain beyond beef into how to be better a better partner with their customers and I live right here outside of Bentonville Arkansas, and have lived here since nineteen seventy and i have had the just, it's been a blessing and just such an interesting life to sit at the table with the senior leaders of Walmart, including Sam Walton, and going hunting with Sam Walton and, and sitting with the senior leadership. And to just know that these guys are really, really interested in serving customers and their shareholders and their people. And they've always been that way and it, and it hasn't been perfect, but I have a unique perspective, Jeanette, in that I've sat out here and watched it. My wife's father. Uh, My father-in-law was uh, president of Walmart during the 70s and 80s and a senior leader. And it's just really, really interesting to be sitting at the table and hearing and listening to some of the greatest retail minds build this fabulous company that's right here about five miles from my house.
1: It's incredible. So the distinction that you just made that this is a digital cooperation of a supply chain, not vertical integration, that seems really key to this whole thing, but Now, I don't want to play into stereotypes or anything, but I've known some cattle producers that tended to be known as maybe being a little bit resistant towards like cooperation and partnership. So I guess my question is, what did you find as you and the Walmart team started to approach potential partners? What was the reaction of producers, of backgrounders, of feed yards, of potential processing partners? What was that reaction from partners as you started approaching them about this type of a digital cooperation of a supply chain?
2: That's a great question. And in order to un- understand that, I think the first thing is, is one of the first times in the history of the beef supply chain, I think, customers are demanding change. And it's one thing for uh, if you're selling to a backgrounder for the backgrounder to demand, well, I need this. I, I have to have something different for the feedlots, even for the grocery stores. But customers across the board and in all economic situations and whether they're Very, very wealthy, or whether they're not, customers are demanding a change and they're demanding to know more than just, oh, my food comes from the grocery store. They want to know where food comes from. So, Walmart knows that. They have unbelievable, uh, smart people, and also unbelievable, as you can imagine, amount of data. And uh, customers are voting. They're voting with their pocketbook when they go in a store and they buy their ketchup and they buy their buns and they buy their mustard, but yet, then they go somewhere else to buy the hamburger. So obviously you go back to the ranchers and through that scenario that, that I talked about a minute ago where we were able to visit and take some leadership to some of my friends and some of my new friends that I've had through my lifetime in the cattle business. And we go to them and, and talk to them about that. And I think the timing was just right in that by 2015, professional ranchers know there needs to be some change. Now, none of us know exactly what that change will be in 2030. And none of us know exactly how that's going to work play out or even how this supply chain for Walmart will play out that Walmart has for their Southeastern stores. And so the reaction was everything from, uh, we've had ranchers tell me, you know, there's been smarter people than, than you, Lamar, tried to change this industry and it doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> and there's reaction of, please, please help us to be able to have some sort of margin, or if there is a margin, increase our margin where our ranch is financially sustainable. And uh, most every rancher we went to, I was very surprised at how authentic and how open the Walmart senior leadership was when they sit around the kitchen table. I'm thinking about Rob Thomas's ranch in Baker City, Oregon, Thomas Angus, and the senior vice president of Meat, whose total responsibility is The meat sales for everything in America looking at him and saying, we have a broken system that doesn't work for Walmart and it doesn't work for Walmart customers. And here are the five things that we've done poorly at Walmart. Can you tell us how we can improve that? And the ranchers, on the other hand, saying, hey, the system of marketing our cattle to the next stage of the supply chain is not working. It's not working at any given time for all four or five parts of that supply chain. It only works for a few of us at a time. Can we cooperate in such a way that everybody makes a little bit instead of one or two segments making it all during the beef cattle supply cycle? You know, we've talked in the past, Jeanette, about droughts and uh, the drought that you and there in Arizona are dealing with right now. And the first thing you said are people are sending cows to market. And so there you go. When that cycle starts and and it's national instead of regional and there's less cattle, then the fewer calves there are, somebody benefits from that and somebody on the other end doesn't benefit from it. And so we had reactions from end to end. Uh, When we went down to 44 Farms at Cameron, Texas, which is another large Angus breeder, and we sat down with them and asked that question, the first question that Bob McLaren, the owner, asked was, how can I be a part of solving this problem? And we didn't hear that uh, everywhere, as some places were like, "Well, this is the problem. get used to it." and Mr. Mclaren at forty four Farms was like, "I want to be a part of solving this problem." And I think at first, uh, Mr. McLaren was thinking of maybe forty stores around Austin or Dallas, and it's turned into when we get the thing built up, it's going to be about five hundred stores in Florida, Georgia, and uh, South carolina, the Alabama, those southeastern states and Walmart actually went out. This shows you the degree of their commitment is is they have built a uh, packaging case-ready plant in southern Georgia to distribute this supply chain for those states from Bob McLaren's uh, program. They built the packaging plant to distribute to the warehouses and the stores, the distribution centers and stores in that region.
1: It's just such a great opportunity, going back to that point that you made earlier of Ranchers looking for ways to margin up on their cattle. I mean, this just seems like such a great opportunity to participate in a high value program. So, maybe next, you mentioned this graduate degree that you've gotten in retail over these past few years working with Walmart on this initiative. Talk to us about what are the biggest surprises that you've learned along the way from the time that Walmart said, Yes, let's go down this path until now, what have been the most surprising lessons that you've learned or the most surprising takeaways for the Walmart leadership team? What's been learned along the process?
2: I think for me, uh, and I knew this for me personally, that I had a, a background with raising cattle and, and being in the purebred Angus business and uh, being taught well by my dad, but I really had little or no knowledge of the grocery business. And I think what I, one of the surprises for me is really how few Of the people all throughout our industry really, really are paying close attention to what customers that eat meat are telling the grocery stores. On the other hand, I think the grocery stores, or at least the few that I've been able to engage with beyond Walmart and Walmart, really just assume that cattle people were going to send them the best quality and that uh, consistency and quality was the number one thing on their mind. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you get paid by the pounds, and there's obviously some friction between the idea that the bigger the cattle are, the the more we're going to make on them, whether it's hybrid vigor at weaning or whether it's breed size and all that, and how that affects the customer eating experience. And somewhere in there is a happy median. And so I've been surprised at how little all of us know about the rest of the industry. And I think living here in Bentonville and having every consumer product company in the world based here and uh, not based here, but has an office here in Bentonville, is that it's surprising because those other supply chains, whether it's Nestle or whether it's water supplies or milk folks or whoever it is, they know a lot more about customers than ranchers know about their actual customers. We, as ranchers, mm-hmm. I raise purebred cattle. My customer was guys buying bulls, and the guys buying bulls, their customers, whoever is uh, buying their calves, and And as an industry, I think we're waking up. And Walmart's not the only one working on on improving their supply chain. The the competition here is going to require more and more high-quality cattle. And ranchers are responding to that. The market signal is that quality and consistency is more important than ever because these customers, they want to know where their food comes from. They want to know how that animal is treated. They want to know to the level of hormone implants, whether they make their own decision on whether they can live with that or not, or whether antibiotics were used, they'll make their own decision. Some customers, those things are important to them. Other customers, they're not so important to them. And so that allows all of us to figure out which niche, which supply chain, and which program we want to be with. One of the lessons I think I've learned that I really didn't ever think about before I went through this process was that... I've been a part of this where it's like, hey, we can get a premium for these better cattle. We're going to do something special, whether it's non-hormone or whether it's organic or whether it's we know the farm that it came from, that we're going to get a premium for that. The lesson that I have learned is that I believe in the future, and I, I, I don't know whether it's five years from now or 10 years, but I believe in the future the base price is going to be in a program. And the rest of us are gonna have commodity pricing. If you're not in a program, it's gonna be a discount instead of there's a level and then there's a premium. And so I think there's gonna be a little bit of a reverse that I see on the horizon is that the uh, the supply chain is gonna require a certain level of quality consistency or some sort of a program, whichever program you wanna be in or works for you and your ranch. But if you're not in the program, then you're going to get hurt instead of that being the base price. That makes sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. And the way you articulated that of that flip from today, few cattle are in a program. And so those producers are getting a premium. Everybody else is going after that commodity market where they're just subject to all the volatility and the risk of being in a commodity market versus that dynamic flipping and more cattle being in a program versus commodity and the idea that you mentioned that you know others are working on this too, others are working on their supply chain. maybe that's a place to drill down a little bit is what do you see across the rest of the industry i mean how How do you see these coordinated supply chains you know what's working, what's not elsewhere in the industry
2: and before I answer that, let me just say also is that we know that there are some issues and challenges and heartburn with raising programmed cattle. If you don't put antibiotics in the feed, if we don't have growth hormones, there are some challenges there. We might flip that around and look at that as an opportunity. If you're in agriculture and you're technology, if you're in agriculture and you're nutrition, if you're in agriculture and you're in genetics or in in, uh, DNA testing or whatever, there are certain bloodlines that will perform better, certain breeds that will perform better in these programs. And so instead of saying, which is my history of kind of going, oh, he doesn't really get it. These program cattle are just too expensive. The death rate's too high, the whatever. And I understand that, but but instead of saying, you know, they don't get it, turn around and say, hey, there's a huge amount of investment outside capital and people that are looking at ag. And if I'm a technologist, then I'm going to be looking at how do I solve the new problems coming up? Because the way we solved them before customers cared about food, in my estimation, will not work. So isn't it just so exciting right now to me to go to the farmer's market and see somebody there with a freezer uh, load of beef that had their cattle killed over in Miami, Oklahoma, which is about an hour and a half for me at the Native American tribe there has a really nice little packing plant there and have people that are selling farm to table from a little grass farm out here in the Ozarks and having customers that are looking at that and saying, I want that. And so that's a supply chain. That needs to be recognized, it needs to be admired, and we need to fan the flame for success all the way through to even a Walmart supply chain. And, uh, you know, we could get out a whiteboard and we could just start writing down all the different programs that are going on the grass fed, the organic. And as ranchers, and whether you're uh, in the middle of that and you're obsessed with organic almost to the point it's become your religion. Or if you're another kind of a rancher and you've done this a certain way a certain number of years and we kind of, I've been guilty of this, is rolling my eyes and saying that that is like a joke. That is not even viable. I don't want anything to do with that. My position now is whatever beef supply chain is successful or not successful yet, I'm going to fan the flame for them to be successful because in the long run, our beef industry is under attack And whether you agree with uh, some of the nuances of some of the supply chains or not, it doesn't matter. We need to win as beef producers in unity and not be separating ourselves by where we are in the supply chain or what type of cattle we raise or what kind of a supply chain that we choose to be in. The specialty breeds that we have. I could see some really cool, and it's already happening, some really cool supply chains for restaurants or for small grocers. And, of course, those guys, the small butcher shops that maybe have 10 butcher shops around a metropolitan area, they're trying to differentiate themselves as well. And so help them. If you have a supply chain that makes a difference, find that outlet for it and go for it
1: so many dynamics, uh, emerging right there in the, in that yeah. environment. So this has been just a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you talking with us. One last question I want to ask you since you talked about having interacted with Sam Walton personally. So what's the biggest, most important business lesson or just piece of wisdom that you learned from your interactions with Sam Walton?
2: Yeah, what a privilege. And, and I was just a young man and, and newly married, and I got to go on hunting trips with Sam down to South Texas for quail. And on one particular hunting trip, uh, he, uh, as you might imagine, was a very competitive guy. He hired the most competitive senior leaders that he could find, and he almost pitted them against each other to try to see who could come up with the best ideas to run Walmart. But it was also that way in the quail hunts, and uh, Mr. Walt did not want anyone else kill more quail than he killed and my father-in-law jack wanted to kill more quail and harvest more quail than sam walton did and so one morning they were hunting along and um, sam was just really on fire and hitting everything he ended up taking the shells out of the shotgun and he was crossing over a fence and when he crossed over the fence he fell right on top of his gun and there were rocks and obviously there were probably cactuses because it was south texas and he fell pretty hard, and my father-in-law, who had gone to Georgia Tech, took his gun, and he put it on top of the hood of a truck. And when he put it on top of the hood of the truck, the truck is obliptical. It's curved. And when you put a straight object, as a Georgia Tech engineer, my father knew, on top of an elliptical line, it makes the straight object look reverse of the hood of the truck. And so he showed that to Mr. Walton, who was still shaken up, and Mr. Walton uh, shook it off, and he looked in, he was his eyes were kind of teary, and he looked down that gun, and he said, you know, son, you're right. That gun is bent off to the right. Oh, my gosh. I've I bent one of my favorite guns, and after that, my father-in-law, Jack Shoemaker, was just on fire. He was hitting everything because he had an edge on Sam, and Sam was getting frustrated and not doing very well at all. Then, then we broke for lunch, and at lunch, Sam would usually be right up in those executives' faces, and he'd be like, why are uh, baked beans down 2% at the New Missouri store? I don't understand that. Why is this? Why is that? And he knew the numbers more than anybody else in the company. And he was sitting over to the side contemplating this problem of the gun. And after lunch, he was again on fire and unable to miss. I mean, he was just hitting everything. My father-in-law went over to him and kind of pulled on him and said, Mr. Chairman, like, you have a bent gun and yet you're hitting everything and he said well son when you pointed out to me that that gun was bent off to the right then i just decided that i would just shoot those birds that were flying right and it's worked (laughs) out really good for me and of course the gun was not bent and so what mr walton was able to do and i think the the next four or five generations of senior leaders at walmart are able to do is you take a disadvantage like a bent gun, and you turn it into Advantage. So there was a time in retail history where suppliers delivered directly to the store. And Mr. Walt was out in all these rural stores, Walmart was, and they finally said, we're not going to deliver paper towels to every little store in Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And so that pushed Walmart to build their first distribution center, which, of course, changed the distribution of all retail and right. that was really a reaction to a disadvantage rather than some genius thing of figuring out, hey, we ought to do distribution centers. The same thing my father in law would tell the story about how hard it was in the 70s to borrow money to build stores in large cities like Tulsa. I'm talking large, in quote, cities Tulsa, right. and Kansas <laughs> City, and Spring, Springfield. And so, since uh, the bankers weren't really all that thrilled about borrowing, loaning money for big cities, then they borrowed money and went to small towns. And they might get a dozen stores in small towns around, let's say, Springfield, Missouri, or six, six little communities around Springfield. And then after a while, you had people driving out from Springfield to buy at the Walmart store. And so the small town strategy was probably forced by economic conditions as much as it was a genius move for the 1960s and 70s. So whatever the disadvantage that you have in this industry, figure out how to turn that into an advantage. And I think that's what uh, my father-in-law and Mr. Walton taught me. And that's one reason why, uh, every time we come up with something that gives us heartburn in the supply chain, and every time it's like, oh my gosh, I just don't know if that can happen. There's, we have this huge disadvantage. Then my mind goes to, how do I turn that into an advantage? And it doesn't work all the time, but it's been a very, very fun process to live that out.
0: Well, what a cool story and a rare look into the thought process of a company like Walmart. It's really interesting how everything is connected and how complex things get, uh, even when you're the largest, uh, one of the largest retailers, if not the largest retailer in the world. Now, for me, knowing very little about meat supply chains, this seems like a clear opportunity for them and many others to create sort of these branded programs. Jeanette, you're my go-to person when it comes to all things meat and animal ag. What are your kind of big takeaways here from the conversation with Lamar?
1: What I would say in addition to, you know, what we talked about at the beginning around this idea of just flipping the system to meet a specific objective is I think what's so fascinating about it is that you are simultaneously proving out that we can have a quality focus and scale. And I think historically the meat sector, the livestock and poultry sectors have viewed those two as opposing objectives that they, they couldn't necessarily exist alongside of each other. And I think that this type of a supply chain approach proves out that they can exist simultaneously. The other takeaway I have is just the power of aligning incentives throughout the entire supply chain. So if producers are able to get a a premium for selling into this program, they're able to have predictability of knowing that Prime Pursuits is going to buy my animals. So I can then build my entire program around that because of the predictability, because of that increased price relative to just the commodity market. So there's a lot of advantages for everyone throughout the supply chain with the ultimate end game of meeting consumer expectations within the context of this branded program. So I I just think that's really exciting. And I think that is the type of thing that, you know, to the point about (laughs) the digital component of an aligned supply chain, as we have more tools, as we have more infrastructure about how we transfer information and follow the animal from cow-calf producer all the way through the supply chain, And back up, right? Those producers, a lot of times they want information. They want feedback to know how their animals performed at the feed yard or at the plant in a system like this. And so to be able to to have two way flow of information, that's something that is still coming to the beef industry. It's still really early, but it's a, it's a promising enabler as we think about, you know, more supply chains like this.
0: Well, Jeanette, I can't thank you enough for doing these episodes. I always feel like I'm learning alongside the audience, but especially these two that you've done, I really feel like I'm learning alongside them because just getting to understand what's happening in the moment. And I think they're both very interesting glimpses into the future of agriculture and how you can try to capture more value and more shared value from both directions. But thank you very much. I also should mention though, that this startup spotlight we're about to launch into also came from you. You sort of sourced this story as well. So I'd love to just get your thoughts before we dive into it. Can you introduce the audience to Series Tag.
1: Absolutely. So, Series Tag is interesting because their founding team is made up of producers themselves who built the company off of a need that they identified. So, I won't steal their thunder in telling that story, but Series Tag has developed a smart tag for cattle, similar to what we were just talking about of what's needed in these digitally aligned supply chains. The smart tag is allowing for the producer to capture. Individual animal data that can be turned into value in the management of that animal and the management of that herd, um, and ultimately the potential for management through the supply chain. Right? And there's there's a lot of different use cases. We're still in the really early days of figuring out how to use these smart tags, but Series Tag is certainly a promising company working on this technology.
0: And for you listening, when Jeanette says "smart tag," she means an ear tag. Except, like traditional ear tags that have been used on cattle for many, many years, this one collects and stores data digitally. Series Tag COO Lewis Frost explains.
3: So, Series Tag is a small wearable device. It's actually an ear tag. Uh, it goes on the on the rear of the ear of of a cow. And what that device does is it records a whole bunch of data about what that animal is doing, how it's moving, is it eating, is it drinking, is it ruminating, is it lying down, is it in distress, where is it in terms of providing a GPS location and it crunches all of that data in real time on the animal. So it's like an edge computing device and it then transmits that data back to a central cloud location via a low Earth orbit Uh, satellite, a network of low-Earth orbit satellites. So what this means is when these devices are deployed, all you have to do is put them on the animal. That's it. There's no infrastructure, no antennas. All that information is streamed wirelessly and and effortlessly back to a centralised location where people can then view, analyse, visualise that data to make decisions about how to better manage those animals. So this could be things like uh, managing their pasture, looking at pasture utilisation, theft, Uh, mustering efficiency, being able to understand the way that animals move around the environment, how healthy they are, are they under attack from wild animals? All of these things are really on-farm efficiency challenges. Then we can also track the location and movement of an animal as it moves right through the supply chain. So the tag stays with the animal for um, its entire life. So we build this massive sort of uh, cow passport of information As an animal moves from cow-calf to backgrounder to feedlotter to processor and the journeys they have in between all of those points. And on that journey, we provide different sets of information to different users to better meet their needs based on their specific requirements.
0: As Jeanette alluded to, this is directly related to the supply chain approach that Walmart is going after. I mean, if the future of supply chains is this digitally coordinated approach, like Lamar was describing, you're going to need the data in order to digitally coordinate, or as Lewis likes to call it, a golden thread through the supply chain.
3: So I think Lamar's really on the money with the coordinated supply chain piece. And what's going to be key to that is Yes, we can achieve coordination between the various actors in the supply chain, but we have to be sure that value flows along that coordinated supply chain. And I guess Tag is really there to help that become a reality. So we're working to be an an auditable, independent, third-party, verifiable source of information on that animal's health, welfare, well-being, condition and location throughout its entire life. And we actually work in a really seamless way to share that data as an animal moves or changes ownership from person A to person B, so does the flow of data. So that new owner can access historical data and understand that animal's background, but receives all of the new and current data, all the while that they have carriage of that animal. Uh, and so on when pass it passes to the next person, they can view historical data and view current data as it flows in in, in near real time. So we have a, an ability to create a lot of trust because people can see in a transparent way, how that animal has been cared for, how it's performed to date and how they can expect it to perform moving forward. And if there's an issue, they can even take that data back uh, to the previous owner in the supply chain and point out what that issue was again with that auditable, verifiable data. So we're really trying to work as the golden thread of data that stitches that whole coordinated supply chain together, right? a single unit or single currency. Of information that people can communicate on and hopefully build trust and really achieve some amazing things with coordinated supply chains. But this is
0: probably not the first time you've heard of a smart ear tag for cattle. They've been around a while. Lewis says the series tag is different.
3: The general sort of smart tag space is is really quite crowded. There's a lot of devices out there. I've worked with a number of them personally myself, and there's some great solutions out there. But What those solutions do is they focus really specifically on one type of production system or one particular point in the supply chain in a laser-like fashion. They only solve part of the problem. So they solve an an on-farm issue for one particular farmer in one particular location. They don't move with the animal. They require a significant investment in infrastructure and hardware set up in that location. And they're usually targeting one or two specific issues. So it might be uh, reproductive status, it might be health, it might be feed intake, but that's all they're doing. So you're spending a lot of money to uh, set up a single location in space and monitor a single animal at a single point in time. So it's really only giving you a photo where the Ceres tag is providing you a complete video of that animal's life if you're looking for an analogy. I think the fact that Ceres tag is is sort of plug and play. So the fact that all you have to do is apply it to the animal and the data starts flowing makes it a lot more accessible for all of the producers around the world in all sorts of different socioeconomic climates, countries and and markets. All they need to do is go online and purchase a device and they can access the data. They don't require specialised personnel to attend the farm, design a system or make an installation for them Uh, in order to access the technology. So I guess we're, we're trying to be ubiquitous and really cover so much of these supply chains that we really can achieve that coordinated level that we've heard about in the discussions today.
0: Thanks so much to Lewis Frost, COO of Series Tag, for sharing a bit about their story today on the show for our Startup Spotlight. Thanks as well to Lamar Steiger and especially to Jeanette Barnard for putting this entire episode together. Make sure you're subscribed to her newsletter, primefuture.substack.com. And to you, thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really do appreciate it and I don't take it lightly. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.